You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Again, Vine family, it's good to be here together. Wherever you may be, it's um, a joy to open up God's Word uh, with you. Like Houston said, my name is James. If we've never met, I'm one of the pastors here at the Vine Church. And uh, I do a lot of things with families and kids and students. And um, students, I hope to see you today, 3 p.m. online, youth group. It's going to be great. And um, I also wanted to, I don't think... uh, about a month ago, I challenged the kids of our church uh, to see if they could memorize uh, the books of the Bible. Not the, the, all of the Bible, but the books of the Bible. And so far, we've had four kids respond to this challenge, winning Chick-fil-A gift cards for their very own chicken nuggets. And I just wanted to give recognition to, to uh, Audrey Peck and also Lizzie Garcia, four years old, memorized the books of the Bible. Kids, I see you, and I hope this inspires you. I got Chick-fil-A um, gift cards just burning a hole in my my, my pocket, so I want these to be yours. Uh, may you be inspired to keep memorizing the books of the Bible. Well, as we get started, I, I want to be real honest uh, with you this morning. Emily and I uh, rarely watch movies together as a couple. In nine years of marriage, we've been to the movie theater. I'm, I'm ashamed to kind of, we've been to like the movie theater twice. Um, I know, you can, you can shame us. And most movies we've watched over the years in our marriage um, usually happen at home, usually something we've checked out at the library. And one of the things I learned early on in our marriage was that Emily and I have two different ways in which we, um, two different, completely different preferences when it comes to the previews at the beginning of the movie. Emily would prefer to, to skip over all the previews, every single one of them, and get right to the movie. And I would prefer to watch every second of every preview of those trailers. 
And here's the deal. I, I, I like the hype. I like to be excited. And I know that's probably hard for you to imagine. But at the end of the day, I simply just like to know what's out there. What maybe I should watch next in like five years. But that's the purpose of the movie trailer, right? It's, it's selected shots, the most important ones, these great musical scores that build the hype, that pique the, the interest of the viewers, making you believe, right, that this is the one you cannot miss. It's coming soon. And, and we're, we're, we're overjoyed, we're happy when, when the fantastic movie trailer matches up with the movie, right? But often, as we all have... Um, most likely experienced, right? Movie trailers, previews can mislead. The, the movie trailer, it looks amazing, but the movie stinks. And you're left what? Disappointed, frustrated. Because the actual movie is, is nothing like the preview, right? And as we turn the page of Matthew to go into chapter 17 this morning, we, we find a preview, a, a movie trailer of sorts to the glory of Jesus. It's coming soon. A, a, a preview that will never disappoint. A preview that will not mislead. A preview that is 100% true. In fact, it was a preview so profound and so grand that not one of the three in the audience that day would ever forget this experience. John, who was there, will write in the beginning of his gospel account. In John chapter 1, he says, And the word, talking about Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And the disciple Peter, as he writes in 2 Peter, he says the same thing. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he later says, Because we were with him on that mountain that we're looking at today. You see, these men, they turned the world upside down. The leaders of the early church and given what they saw on that mountain on that day, it's not surprising that each one of them would willingly suffer and die for their faith in Jesus. Vine family, this text and this sermon is all about the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus. And here's our simple direction this morning. Two things. One, to see Jesus just as he is. To see Jesus just as he is. And then secondly, and it's connected, is to show Jesus just as he is. We want to see Jesus just as he is and then show or present Jesus just as he is. Would you pray with me again? Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and open our eyes to help us turn aside from any wandering thought or distraction in this moment. And let our hearts be good soil to receive your implanted word that we may produce fruit in keeping with your truth. We ask this in the name of the Father. Amen. Well, first, seeing Jesus just as he is. Turn with me, if you're not there already, Matthew chapter 17, the first book 
New Testament. Kids, you already knew that, right? Matthew 17, verses, verse 1 and 2 to begin with. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So, so, so here we have Jesus. He grabs his boys, Peter, James, and John. We don't know why these three, but he seems to do it often. And he heads up on a mountain. And Matthew tells us that Jesus is transfigured right before these three men. And I don't know about you, but transfigured is kind of an unfamiliar word. It really fails, I think, for us to capture the spectacular of this moment. Because transfigured literally means a a change of form. And it's probably better understood in our English language as the word metamorphosis. And metamorphosis, as we know, and we've probably witnessed, is one of the ways in which we describe the amazing transformation of a caterpillar to a butterfly. It's, a, it's an outward change happening from within. An outward change happening from within. This past summer with, uh, you know, the, the parks and the pools closed, right? Um, our family spent a lot of time outside, but in our yard or in our neighborhood. And in a lot of ways, our, our home became kind of like a butterfly sanctuary, because we discovered uh, that we live by a, a patch of milkweed. And, and this is the plant in which butterflies will, will lay their eggs. And so we would, you know, on our walks, we'd carefully collect these eggs and we'd protect them. We'd place them in the container and, and keep them safe. And then we would watch as these eggs, you know, hatched and caterpillars, little tiny caterpillars that you could barely see with your eye came out of these eggs. And every day we would gather fresh milkweed and we would feed these caterpillars and they would eat it. And it's, it's true, it's a hungry caterpillar, right? And, and, and in a few weeks' time we would witness that the caterpillars, they would cocoon at the top of the container. And then right before our eyes they would transform into a magnificent butterfly. It's really, it's unexplainable, these, these plain, ordinary, crawling caterpillars becoming beautiful, magnificent, flying creatures. Right before our eyes, this happened, an outward change that happened from within. And I think it's the same type of transformation that's, that's happening right in front of Peter, James, and John. It's unexplainable, and honestly, I, it's It's supernatural. R.C. Sproul says it like this. He says, we might say Jesus crossed from the line, uh, from the natural to the supernatural, from, from the human to the divine, as, as in a sense the cloak of humanity that veiled his true glory was somehow removed and his glory became visible. Notice how Matthew describes this transfiguration in verse 2. He first says that Jesus' face shone like the sun, that Jesus' face shone like the sun. And, and think about that metaphor, right? Whenever there's a solar eclipse, we're told what all over the news, right? Be careful, maybe don't go outside, protect your eyes. If you go outside, avoid looking up at the searing blindness of the light of the sun. And when astronomers study the sun, they can't just look, they have to have a filter, that, that, that filter the media that filters out the, the brightness of the sun, And it's this intense brightness like that of the sun that suddenly emanates from Jesus' face. 
And Matthew also says there that his clothes become white as light. Meaning the intensity of this brightness, this, this light from within, it, it spreads out kind of, and Jesus is a glow like, like that of a, a light bulb. It, it's so brilliant that it sends light through his garments, making his garments appear white as light. You see, in this moment, Peter, James, and John, I think, are seeing Jesus just as God always saw Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity. Remember back to Exodus 34 in Moses, not Moses here in this account, but Moses back in Exodus 34 as he, as he goes up on the mountain to talk with God. And he asks God to see his glory. And God responds that no man can look on his face and live, yet God, in his graciousness, he covers Moses' face, right? He covers his face, and God and his glory pass by. And Moses glimpsed the backside of God's glory, the backside. And as Moses, right, comes down the mountain, remember, the people are terrified. Terrified because Moses' face shone with this dazzling brightness because he had seen the glory of God. And the people then were, were terrified. Yet, yet, yet here in Exodus 34, the glory of Moses' face was only a reflection of God's glory. You see, Peter, James, and John, and Matthew here, do they did not reflect, they're not seeing a, a reflection of God's glory. They're beholding a glory from within Jesus himself. You see, Moses had to place a veil over his face to conceal the dazzling brightness. But listen now. The dazzling brightness of Jesus that was emanating from, from him was far too glorious to be concealed. It was so glorious that his clothes became white as light. And come on now, John in, in Revelation at the end of time writes of the new Jerusalem, it has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. Why? Because the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. And who is that lamb? It's Jesus. You see, the glory of Jesus, which will light all of eternity, is the same light in which the disciples here on this mountain witness. We find in this transfiguration that the divinity of Christ is bursting forth through his humanity. That the divinity of Christ is bursting forth through his humanity. And I'm not going to pretend that I understand this. I'm just reading what I see. And as the disciples are spellbound to the glory of Jesus in the moment, they're given something else to embrace. Verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, talking with Jesus. Now, if there's ever a time to be a fly on the wall to listen to a conversation, it's, it's right here. Hearing Jesus talk with Moses and Elijah, come on. But, but why, why these two men from the Old Testament and not, say, David or Isaiah? They seem pretty great as well. Well, I think it's because of what these two men represented in the Old Testament. That Moses, as the, the giver of the law, and Elijah, a prophet, a guardian of the law. You see, in Moses and Elijah, you, have, you literally have a visceral representation of the entirety of the Old Testament. 
Because as we know, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament was written to present Jesus, to predict that Jesus would come. And so as Moses and Elijah stand there now with Jesus, it's as if to say, he is the one, this is the one, this is the one who was to come. And remember Jesus earlier in Matthew 5, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, but, but what? To fulfill them. I want you to hit the pause button, not literally on this live stream, but on this, this scene, on this mountaintop, this most fantastic mountaintop scene. Jesus dazzling as like the high noon sun, talking with the saintly heroes of old. Moses, who's been dead for 1,400 years, and Elijah gone for over 900 years. On this mountaintop, if there's ever a time for silence and for awe, I think it's, I think it's right here. We'll enter Peter. Peter seems to always have something to say, even when there's nothing to be said. Verse 4, he says, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. And I love that line. I don't know fully what, you know, the tone in which he's saying it, but I, you know, Lord, it's good that we're here. I love that. I think I probably would have said the same thing. Lord, it is good that we're here. And if you wish, he's learning, he's asking permission here, unlike last time. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. You see, last time Peter injected his own like, idea, right, in the, in the last chapter, Jesus rebuked him. But now, in, in chapter 17, it seems like Jesus allows Peter just to keep yakking about this idea about tents, because we see in the next verse, he's, he's still talking about these tents. Like, I can imagine the scene, they're up on the mountain, Jesus is glowing, these saintly guys are here, and, and he's like, Peter's like, hey, hey, guess what, guys, I got this great idea. Moses? I know you're a guy who likes to be on the move. I, I know you like to, you're kind of a wanderer, free spirit. I get that. I respect that. And so I got this idea for a tent that like has these poles. They can quickly snap into place. You can put up, take down. You can, you can do it all in 60 seconds. You'll be great, Moses. And Elijah, like, I know you like fire. You're kind of a fire guy. You're kind of, you know, that's kind of your thing. And so I got this idea where you can put a fire pit inside the tent. It's safe. You can roast marshmallows. And Jesus, hey, I know you got this thing of looking up to the heavens, talking with your father. And so, hey, I got this new idea in which we can create a tent that has like this, this, uh, this uh, uh, you know, opening in the, in the sky, the skylight, and so you can lay down, Jesus, on your back, look at the stars, talk with your father, it's going to be great. And in and, and verse 5, it says he's still talking. Peter is still talking about these tents and what happens in verse 5. As Peter is going on and yakking and yakking about these tents, verse 5, he's still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadows them. And a voice comes out of the cloud and says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Well, Peter stops talking because Peter's on the ground. All three of the disciples fall to the ground and verse 6 tells us they're terrified. Terrified because they realize they're in the very presence of God the Father. And, and these three Jewish men certainly 
new. And for us, we can easily trace throughout the Old Testament that this bright cloud is God's continual way in which he reveals his presence to the people of Israel. It's his Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory that was the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that went before Israel in the wilderness. It was the cloud that passed by Moses on that mountain that, that set his face aglowing. It was the cloud that filled the tabernacle in the wilderness and the, and the, and the cloud that flooded the, the, the temple of Solomon. And it's also a cloud that no one had seen for hundreds of years because there had been much silence. Yet here and now, Peter, James, and John find themselves in that very cloud, the Shekinah glory of God, a cloud that Moses was not even permitted to look upon. They, the disciples, are within it. And knowing this, the disciples fall on their face, terrified. Because when you come into the presence of God, all of a sudden you feel exposed, right? We see this all throughout Scripture. Adam and Eve sin, and then they realize their nakedness. So they conceal and hide, ashamed to be seen by God. We see it in Isaiah when he says, curse me, God, wipe me out when he encounters God. It's how Gideon, how Daniel, how Paul, every person throughout Scripture reacts when they encounter God's presence. And I love this, verse 7. As the disciples lay flat on the ground, it says, but Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they, the disciples, lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The Shekinah glory was gone. Jesus' skin and clothing no longer glowed. Moses and Elijah had disappeared. And as the disciples looked up, all they saw was Jesus. And all they needed was Jesus. Friends, this is what all our experiences, all our theology, all of our work, all of our worship should come to be is seeing Jesus alone. Seeing Jesus just as he is. Because we can enter into the very presence of God and have no fear. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are imputed with his righteousness, seen by God as holy. Meaning, Jesus takes away our unworthiness and gives us adoption as sons and daughters into the family of God. Jesus takes away our guilt and shame and gives us perfect peace and joy. Jesus takes away our penalty of death and gives us the gift of eternal life. The Bible says that Jesus' death and resurrection fully satisfies the payment of our sins. Hear this now. God can never be dissatisfied with you if you are in Christ. Jesus' life and death and resurrection fully satisfies. And if you're in Christ, God can never be dissatisfied with you. See, this is, this is the shining brilliance of Jesus, and it's marvelous. And there's more. 
Because as Scripture unfolds, we're told as Scripture continues to unfold that Jesus will return again. A golden crown this time upon his head. And he's sitting upon what? These very clouds gathering unto him his sons and daughters. Meaning someday you and I are going to be in that cloud. The Shekinah glory is going to surround us, a glory to be enjoyed forever and ever. Amen? Now that is an awesome movie trailer. And it's 100% true. On that mountain, the disciples saw Jesus just as he is. What about you? Who do you see Jesus as? The single most important thing about your life is what you believe about Jesus, friend. Is Jesus just a a man, an ordinary man? Is he a good teacher? Is he crazy? Or is Jesus the son of God? I think the transfiguration reveals a lot. The transfiguration reveals Jesus is more than just a man. He's shown like the sun. The transfiguration reveals more that Jesus is more than just a good teacher because he fulfills what every teacher, what every prophet has ever written. The transfiguration reveals more than that Jesus is just a crazy guy because God the Father himself endorses, confirms, affirms Jesus. The transfiguration reveals that Jesus is the Son of God. In a sense, Jesus lifted the corner of the veil of humanity and the disciples saw the remarkable, unspeakable glory. And I think this is kind of one of the whole points of this thing, that this everyday life is not the whole story. It's not the whole story. For there is a reality beyond what we see and recognize and it's glorious beyond all words. Our singing here this morning, even as we sung in our own homes across Dane County. Friends, it's a singing that joins together with the church triumphant. The church that's already surrounding the throne of grace singing, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. We join with them. That's what worship is. That's where worship goes. That's what we're doing here this morning. This world as we see it with our eyes is not the whole story and that's what the transfiguration tells us. There is a glory beyond. There is a beauty beyond. And it's what Jesus has already won for us. And it's what Jesus is inviting you into. Is this the Jesus you worship? You see, when Peter was on that mountain, when Peter beheld the glory of Jesus, his gut was to do something. He he wanted, in a sense, to start start a a ministry, a building ministry. He wanted to make some tents. Peter wanted to get busy, to get to work, and he completely missed worship. When you behold the glory of Jesus in your life, what is your gut? What is your impulse? Is it getting busy, maybe proving or uh, gaining acceptance? Is it your heart 
uh, filling with doubt that this could be true for you? Is there moments where you fall flat on your face and just simply marvel in awe? Friends, I know we each have busy lives with great responsibilities. And our minds, I know, continually are racing from one thing to the next. I get that. But let me suggest something. That our affection for Jesus and really our obedience will only be as deep as the time we spend with him. As Christians, our view of Jesus should really kind of be like those first days of falling in love. You remember those days? Maybe it's long ago. Maybe you're falling in love right now. I know for me, when Emily and I began dating, I'd find myself at my desk, supposed, you know, supposed to be getting my homework done, but simply just spacing off, looking at nothing in particular, but just dreaming of her beauty, longing to be in her presence again. It seemed like time stopped and it didn't matter. I was just lost in awe of wonder. That's what falling in love in a lot of ways is. You see, Emily was not something I was adding into my life. Emily at that time, she she was my life, and she still is, but Emily was my life. You see, fine family, may we be a people so greatly in awe of our Savior that we, our greatest pursuit in life is to know Jesus more and more. And so I'd encourage you, especially in this unique and frustrating time of of COVID, to to start your day and and spend five, ten minutes, and it's not about an amount, but to simply sit before Jesus quietly, no agenda, no phone, but to be intentional, to set time to behold his glory, to worship him, to praise him, to thank him. And why not write down the ways in which you see the brilliance of his glory all around you and keep that list in your Bible and add to it and read it and reread it and remind yourself of the glory of Jesus. Friends, if we do not see Jesus just as he is, we'll never find it worth living a life of faith. If we do not see Jesus just as he is, we'll never find it worth living a life of faith. See Jesus just as he is, as our greatest treasure. And connected with this thought is seeing Jesus just as he is, but then showing Jesus just as he is. As quickly as the transfiguration happened, it's, it's, it's over, right? And everything seems to be normal again. And if I had been on that mountain with Jesus, I cannot imagine how excited I would have been to run down the mountain, tell the other nine people, guys, that weren't invited to this mountain, and tell them all the things that they missed out on. It's like landing on the moon. You have the best story to tell. But what does Jesus say in verse 9? As they're coming down the mountain, Jesus commands them, hey, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Really, Jesus? (laughs) I was just about ready to be the best, you know, best story at the dinner party. I was, I had just met in a lot of ways like that person dead or alive who you've always wanted to meet, like, and you can't even tell anyone about it. But Jesus says not to tell. I mean, that's interesting. 
And I think it has something to do with the Jews and their understanding of the Messiah. They wanted a political deliverer. They wanted somebody to knock off the Romans. They had an idea, a different idea of who Jesus was to be. But we know Jesus did not come to conquer Rome. Jesus came to conquer death and sin. And Jesus wants to be shown for who he is, not shown for how they wanted him to be or how to look. And Matthew opens a door for us to kind of catch a deeper glimpse into what Jesus is saying here in verse 10. And so the disciples asked him, then then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And for our ears, this is like a very odd question, pretty bizarre that this is the question that the disciples come up with in this moment, right? But for the Jewish folks, this would, have made a lot of, this, this would have been a question they wanted to hear answered because the last verse of the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi, chapter 4, it foretells the coming of Elijah before the Messiah. And so the scribes, the religious experts at this time, they taught that Elijah will come before the Messiah comes. And so, as true today, whenever the Passover is celebrated by Jewish folks, there's still a chair that is always left empty. Empty for, reserved for Elijah. And so, so having seen what they'd seen on that mountain, believing Jesus to be the Messiah, they, they've seen him as the Son of God, the disciples begin to question the teaching of Elijah. It kind of makes sense. It's like they're saying, hey, speaking of Elijah, we kind of just saw him. Like, why hasn't he come in fullness? And you can see Jesus' response there in verse 11. He says, hey, you're right. Elijah does come first. But then Jesus kind of turns it a little bit and says, and guess what? He already has come. And he was missed because he was not seen for who he was. And the disciples rightly deduced there in verse 13, then the disciples understood that he, Jesus, was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And, and, and this, friends, it's, it's a confusing section of Scripture, but it's, it is key to our understanding that, that Jesus, ultimately, he came down this mountain of glory because Jesus came to defeat sin and death. And the path to that victory was a path of great suffering. And just as Elijah suffered, John the Baptist Suffered. Just as Elijah wasn't well received, John the Baptist was not well received. And likewise, Jesus, he's saying here in this moment, I will not be received well and I will suffer. We see it there in verse 12, right? So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. See, this is not about a political victory, this is about an eternal victory. And until sin and death has been defeated, it's not yet time for glory. It's suffering now, and then glory will come. And this was exactly the message Jesus was telling his disciples throughout Matthew chapter 16, the last chapter. Look with me back in the last chapter in verse 21, right? He's telling his disciples, hey, I got to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And that's where we see Peter in verse 22 taking aside Jesus and saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. See, Peter can't get this idea, this piece about suffering. 
And we see it in our passage this morning as well, that even as Jesus' glory shone like the sun on that mountain, notice Peter's suggestion in verse 4 of chapter 17. Peter says, Lord, it is good that we're here, and if you wish, I will make three tents here. In another way, Peter's just saying, hey, let's extend this time of glory. Jesus, you don't need to go down that mountain. It's good to be in this glory. There's no need for suffering. Jesus, let's hang. Let's hang in glory. But Jesus comes down that mountain of glory and he walks towards Jerusalem and he walks towards suffering and death. And this is what the transfiguration teaches us. That God did not intend for us to to camp out on that mountain of glory. Because it's not time yet. We've been called to come down that mountain And to take that glory, to take that beauty, to take that understanding, and to go right into the valleys. And to create beauty and glory in the same way Jesus did for us on the cross. To show Jesus just as he is. He's not to the Jew a political deliverer. And neither is he for us some sort of health and wealth deliverer. It's not about you in this world. It's about eternity. What type of Jesus, by your words and your life, are you showing? Are you presenting to others? Would those around you see the beauty and brilliance of Jesus manifested on that mountain? And friends, showing Jesus was never meant to be easy. It certainly won't be convenient, and it's immensely costly. You know, if Jesus was simply to overthrow a singular, oppressive nation, the Romans, it would have been easy. But Jesus was after much more. He was about overthrowing sin and death, and it cost him his life. So when the voice of God says in that cloud on that mountain in verse 5, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. We listen, we trust, and we obey. Because when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, we listen, we trust, and we obey. When Jesus says, Who, whatever, whoever would save his life will lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, we listen. We trust and we obey. Why do we listen? Why do we trust? Why do we obey? Because we've been given a phenomenal preview. There's coming a day of glory. There's coming a day, as Jesus says in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 16, that the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Our lives in Christ may be hard. And they may get tougher. Our life in Christ may include much suffering. It may not be popular. It may not be well received. 
But be not discouraged, vine family. This world is not our only reality. There is something far greater. And we're reminded of the words of Paul and Timothy when he says, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. That is the hope that we cling to. That no matter what small measure of suffering we endure in this life, it's not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us in Jesus. And it's this glimpse of glory in the transfiguration that gives us a preview of what that day will one day be like. Let us pray. Jesus, we praise you this morning. We praise you this morning, Jesus. We thank you. You have come to seek and save the lost. And that one day, you will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. You will make right all things that are wrong. As we sung so beautifully at the beginning, that one day we will feast at your table. And help us to remember that that is in nothing because of what we've done or brought before you. But help us come to you, Jesus, in worship. That we would worship you rightly. That our affection would grow. And that our obedience would follow. Lord, empower us by your Spirit to live while in this world that we might present Jesus as he is to a world that desperately needs him. May we be beacons of hope in our communities. May we be salt and light. Give us endurance. Set before us the prize of eternity that we may continue to walk until one day you come back. In your name we pray, amen. You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org.